you would grab a Bible, open it with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, where we'll begin this time of our study, Romans chapter 5. Good to see you this morning. Good to see we have visitors. Thank you for being here. I want you to always feel welcome and know that we're glad to see you and want to get to know you better. Anything we can do to help you to be right with God or to help deal with some problem or issue that you're having, we'd love to, let, uh, we'd love to do what we can, so please let us know about that. Romans chapter 5, I want to begin by reading here, Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. The text says, Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why be a Christian? What is the appeal of Christianity? Very often we talk about the obstacles of Christianity. How Christianity goes against the grain of our society. How people often oppose it. How it involves self-denial. And we talk about the, the challenges that we face as Christians, but, but why would anybody want to become a Christian in the first place? Or why should we who are Christians want to continue in that pursuit? Well, it seems to me important that we say the motivation for becoming a Christian is not some kind of worldly prosperity. We don't become Christians because we get stuff if we do. In fact, it seems to me that there are assurances that when we seek the kingdom of God, there are things we will lose. So that's not the draw. Christianity doesn't promise worldly success. In fact, it promises very much the opposite. Jesus does change us, but the promise of of the transformation of the gospel is not about something we would talk about today like a psychological adjustment or where we learn about self-esteem or things like that. We don't become Christians to be entertained the way people of the world consider entertainment. We don't pursue worldly pleasures, and that's the reason that we're here studying about Jesus this morning. These are not the things that God is promising. And in fact, it seems to me that even though those are the things many in our world are seeking, those are solutions to what we might call first world problems. Those are solutions that don't really address the real issues in our lives. And so it seemed to me that it would be important for us as we consider how we're going to send the appeal, like we've sung about sending the light, what is the appeal of the gospel? That we again look at why we should be a Christian and why we should encourage other people to be a Christian. Well, there are a lot of ways to do that. I could come up with, you know, several dozen points that we could talk about all the different things that are reasons why we could become a Christian. I've chosen not to do that this morning. You can thank me after the service. But what I've decided to do is to look here in Romans chapter 5 and to look with the perspective that Paul has. Because it seems to me that what Paul does in Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 is to give us a little bit of an index of the motivations for Christians. Look again in Romans 5 and verse 1. The text says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Paul points to the past, to the present, and to the future in describing the great blessing it is to be a Christian. And so that's what I want to do for a few minutes this morning. Just look at the question, why be a Christian, from the perspective of the past and of the present, 
and of the future. So first, he talks about the past, that we are justified or have been justified by faith in verse 1. And when he says that in verse 1, having been justified by faith, he is referring to the preceding chapters in the book of Romans, which detail the importance of being justified by faith and how that has happened through Jesus. It seems to me that when you read a phrase like justified by faith, that needs some unpacking. Because if you go out and say, you need to be justified by faith, all you're going to get are eye rolls. Okay, People are not interested in that message expressed that way. So what Paul is really saying is, Christianity is appealing because Christianity helps us to truly deal with the problem of sin. That's the issue here. So let's go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, where Paul begins this argument about sin. What Paul is saying here is that we want to be Christians because only Christianity helps me deal with my sin. And so we're going to have to really redeem some of the language of the Bible for today because many people feel that sin is sort of a, a, a relic of a bygone era. It's something that no longer is relevant to us today. But sin is the issue of when I do wrong and feel guilt and know that punishment is deserved for it. And so because I know that, there is a need to be saved from the consequences of my own action. And that is what the Bible describes as salvation. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. In Romans 1 and 16 he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he talks about the power of God that the gospel is to salvation, to be saved from the consequences of my sin. And not only is it for Jews, it's also for Greeks, which implies that it is for all peoples. That no matter who we are, we have the problem of sin. And no matter who we are, we can be saved from sin by learning and obeying the gospel. And what Paul does in these first chapters of Romans is to describe how that looks. First, from the perspective of the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Romans 1:18, he says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he talks about how these people begin at a certain level, but they fail to acknowledge God. And so verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so they go on this spiral, a descending spiral, where things get worse and worse and worse. In verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then verse 28, I want you to see where this goes. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So when Paul describes the descent of the Gentiles, he describes it as a series of exchanges. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. They exchange the creator for the creature. And then it describes it as a series of God giving up. 
God gave them over to do these things. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. God gave them up. In other words, God said, you go on and you just do what you want to do. And I'll let you go. And that ends in that last section where Paul is just saying every evil behavior that we observe in society today is a result of a descent like this. Where slowly we move away from God and gradually we find ourselves completely different in character from the God who made us. That's sin. And it is a description of sin and how sin grows on itself. But that's not all Paul has in mind. Because while I believe there he is describing Gentiles, he also wants to talk to the Jews. And so he says in Romans 2 and verse 1, Romans 2 and verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So do you think Jews are somehow exempt from God's judgment? That must have been what some of the Jewish audience were thinking. That somehow because they don't go as far down that path of sin as the Gentiles did, they'll be okay. They can look down on those Gentiles as if being a Jew makes Jewish sin okay. He goes into a little more detail down further in the chapter in verse 17. Romans 2 and verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your uncircumcision, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now what's happening here is Paul is shooting in a lot of different directions with specific sins... But he is getting at the point that the Jews are hypocritical. They can say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. They can preach about it. They can say, let me tell you what God says. But at the end of the day, they're guilty too. And so he says, you preach about it and you rail against it, but you're guilty too. And so this is another way sin works. Sin does work by the rejection and the outright rebellion and the going down the spiral that we said in chapter 1. But sin also works this way where we're trying to be good people and we look down on everybody in the spiral, but we're guilty ourselves. And at the end of the day, does it really matter which way we got into the predicament we're in? We're all guilty of sin. And so he says in chapter 3 and verse 9, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There it is. So you can get there one way or you can get there another way, but we all get to the same place. Let me break that down practically for today. Sometimes what that's going to look like, getting into the problem of sin, is it's going to look like a life of rebellion that just degenerates farther and farther and gets worse and worse until we hit rock bottom. And sometimes what that's going to look like is a life of trying to do the right thing and sometimes failing. Yet despite our failure, we continue to condemn and condescend to other people. 
But we all end up at the same place. And here's the problem with sin. We have no way to fix it. We have no way to remove the sin or the guilt of the sin or the consequences of the sin. We can't do anything about it. We are simply guilty. And so there is no hope of somehow working our way out of the sin. It doesn't really matter if it's been a long time since we committed the sin. It doesn't really matter if we changed our ways after we did it. It doesn't really matter if we've apologized and asked for forgiveness. There is still sin. We can't get rid of the sin. And that is why the gospel is good news. That is why we need to be a Christian, is because we can be justified by faith. That we can be saved from that sin. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, Romans 3 and verse 21, Paul talks about this. He says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, God has done something. Something new, something that's not a part of the law. Apart from the law, he has sent his son. And this, he says in verse 24, justifies us by his grace as a gift. And that's an important idea because what that means is we don't deserve what God is offering us in Jesus. It is something he has freely given. No claim that I have on it. I cannot say, God, you owe me this. I must have a savior. I deserve it. I don't. Instead, God has chosen to send His Son to reach out to mankind and to give His life as a sacrifice for our sins. In verse 25, he talks about God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. It is the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus that cleanses and heals and mends and saves when it is received by faith. And so Paul will talk about faith as the vitally important part. But I want us to hear, both those who are not Christians in our audience and those who are, we don't ever deserve the sacrifice of Jesus. It is not something that we ever earn. And no amount of works and goodness that we put forth ever means that we deserve salvation. We deserve the consequences of our own sin. So, why be a Christian? It is only in Christ that we truly face our sin. It is only here that we take ownership. What I'm about to say is very meaningful to me. And it was a cloud that was over my eyes for a long time. It seems to me that very often we refuse to take ownership of our sin. And we blame our sin on the propensities that we have, maybe genetically. After all, that's just the way we are in my family. We're just hotheads. That's what we do. Or perhaps we blame our sin on our upbringing and our environment. And we say, you know, how would anybody who grew up the way I grew up not turn out this way? And while I do not deny 
that our genetics and our environment play a role in who we are and what we choose. At the end of the day, my sin is always my fault. It is never the fault of my parents. It is never the fault of my environment. There are other people who will answer to God for the choices they have made, but I will answer to God for my choices. And brothers and sisters, it is only God who ever called me to account for my own sin. Everyone else would give me excuses. I would make my own excuses. But it is only in Christ that I found a way to face it. To say, I did it. It was wrong. I am sorry. I need forgiveness. That's why Christianity matters. Because it's not about excuses anymore. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to cover up. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to use euphemisms. I can call it what it is. Say, that's who I used to be. But I have been forgiven. That's why I'm a Christian. Because I have been justified by faith. I am not a perfect person. But I can say that I am a forgiven person. And that I no longer have anything to hide. And that is a beautiful feeling. When we're willing to face our sin and admit it and stop it and move on and we find the forgiveness that Christ gives, we find a new life. I just want to say before I leave this point, we are observing in our culture in this moment in time as we see the proliferation of these sexual scandals that are going on and being exposed, the importance of understanding that the actions that we do don't just expire. There is not a statute of limitations on wrong. So that if I did wrong, but it's been 20 years, it's no big deal anymore. There are things that are being drug out in the news today that are, are decades old. Because what we did decades ago was still bad. That's sin. And that is the principle of Scripture that says sin doesn't just go away. Sin must be dealt with. That's why we need the gospel. Because Jesus will take sin away. We can be justified. By faith. Let's go back to Romans 5. Romans 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we talked about the past. Let's talk about the present. Paul uses three different ideas that I want us to look at as we talk about what it is to be a Christian right now. He uses the word peace and the word grace and the word joy. Let's talk first about peace. He says in verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is in contrast to the idea of enmity or hatred that he talks about a little later in the chapter. Look in Romans 5 beginning in verse 6. Romans 5 and verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what he is describing here is the idea that prior to the sacrifice of Jesus, we were enemies of God. We were ungodly. And now the word he uses is we have been reconciled. There is peace between us again. And this is a staggering statement of the love of God, especially those verses for 6, 7, and 8. 
where it describes Christ dying for us while we were sinners, while we were weak, while we were useless. God does not simply look at his enemies and decide, you know what? They have something valuable to offer me. Because again, he says, we didn't have anything. We were weak. He looks at his enemies and he sees their weakness and he loves them anyway. But he doesn't just love them enough to make peace with them and say, you know what, let's just bury the hatchet. He loves them enough to make peace with them through the death of his son. And Paul brings this out. Scarcely would one die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why be a Christian? Because there is a God who loves you that much. That when you are running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction, when you had nothing to offer him, when you had nothing but rebellion at heart, he loved you and sacrificed his perfect son for you. And now, now there is peace. Peace with God. Is not static. It moves out into my relationships with other people. When I'm at peace with God, I don't have to worry about you. I don't have to worry about, you know, is somebody, somebody giving him more respect than I get? I feel threatened by him. Is he more attractive than I am? Does he make more money than me? When I'm at peace with God, I'm not worried about what's going on with everybody else. The great problem of my life is fixed. I can face myself and know that I am loved and know that my life has purpose. That's why I'm a Christian. Because I can be at peace with you when I'm at peace with God. And I can be at peace within. When Paul talks about the peace of God that passes understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That there is a peace that says, whatever happens in life, I can handle it because the real issue has been dealt with. Paul also talks about grace. Look in Romans 5 and verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The idea here is not just that God at one time sent Jesus to provide a sacrifice and now we could have that sacrifice, but but it is a grace in which we stand, a grace in which we live. And the idea is that God continues to shower blessings on us. And the idea is that God is continually willing to forgive us. The problem with the idea of grace and standing in grace is that almost immediately it can lead in the wrong direction for us. And that's what Paul addresses in the, in the letter to the Romans, in chapter 6, where he talks about people taking that grace and, and taking advantage of it. In chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The question there is, if more sin equals more grace, because God will forgive more and more, can't we just keep sinning? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been, buried, have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul says when you were baptized, you were baptized into his death so that you would die to sin. Not so you could keep living in sin just because you have the excuse of grace. And so he warns us about that. He warns us about the fact that sin is trying to enslave us again. And so we cannot just continue to live in sin just because of the fact that we have access to grace. So that is the negative side. But I want you to look with me in Romans chapter 8. And I want you to see the other side. The appeal of life and grace. In Romans 8 and verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There is a liberation. He talks about being set free. He talks about having no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That now we live in Christ. We walk in the Spirit. We have access to this grace. That's why I'm a Christian. Why be a Christian? Because you can know that forgiveness and blessing are the state of your life. Now, again, that doesn't mean we can abuse that. That doesn't mean that we can continue in sin. But it does mean that when we find ourselves in sin, we know where to go. And we know that our God will have us back. That's life and grace. To know that God loves me and that I continue in relationship with him. Paul also talks about joy. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5 and verse 2, he says, Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Christians live a different kind of life. Christians, according to the New Testament, live a different kind of life, a life where joy and not sorrow is the order of the day. Joy reaches backward into the past and says, What used to be the great issue of my life, all the sorrow I went through because of my sin, that has all been redeemed. That has all been forgiven. And that is only where I used to be. Joy reaches to the present and says, I am a child of God. I belong to the God of heaven. And joy looks to the future. I rejoice because I have gained clarity for my life. I rejoice because I know who I am. Good and bad, clearly seen for the first time. I rejoice because I find myself the object of God's great love. I rejoice because this life is a gift from my God for me to enjoy. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again I say rejoice. But joy is, is tied to the future in this text. Do you notice it in verse 2? It says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because what we really rejoice in is that the best hasn't happened yet. A lot of great things have happened to us as Christians. And we celebrate those things. And we are thrilled to worship a God who loves us so much and has done so much for us. But the best is yet to come. And so he says in verse 3, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So even though we suffer, we rejoice in hope. We still look forward. And the suffering doesn't diminish the hope. Instead, the suffering makes the hope more intense because when things are not great here and we find ourselves hurting here, it just intensifies the hope of what's going to happen when the Lord returns. Why be a Christian? It's a life of peace. It's a life of grace. It's a life of joy. That's why I'm a Christian. But if we talk about the past, if we talk about the present, we have to go forward and talk about the future, where Paul talks about hope in the glory of God in verse 2. See, there are some aspects to the story that have not yet been completed. And Christianity in the New Testament very much reads like a book where the ending hasn't been happening yet. It's to be continued. And so the book of Romans reads in the same way. I want you to turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So he talks about the Holy Spirit and how we walk after the Spirit and that how we receive the Spirit of his Son. And that if we are sons, then we're heirs. And the, the beauty of the image of the inheritance or the heir is that that always looks forward to the time when we inherit what is rightfully ours. He says in verse 17, we're fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. I want you to notice the idea of glory back in chapter 5 and hear the idea of being glorified. What awaits the Christian. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is the essence of hope, by the way. If you ever want to know what does hope mean, it's verse 18. Things are going to be better, and in fact, so much better, it's not even worth comparing. What's coming compared to what is. So why be a Christian? You be a Christian because we have something to look forward to, something great. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul talks here about the creation and the, the liberation of the groaning creation. 
In verse 20, he talks about how it was subjected to futility. In verse 21, that it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. What will that look like? The creation being set free. Well, sometimes it's called new heavens and a new earth. Or sometimes it's called a new Jerusalem. Sometimes it's called a heavenly city. I can't tell you all the dimensions of that, what that's going to be like or look like. Here is what I know. This broken world is not always going to be our home. That's the point. But Paul rushes forward out of that. Instead of explaining that, he wants to talk about what we experience in verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We want for this body to somehow be changed, to be redeemed, to be perfected to be set free, to be remade. I don't understand the full dimensions of all of that. What will that look like? But here is what I know. I know that this body decays and ages and gets hurt and breaks down and gets diseases and ultimately dies. I've begun to experience that myself. It is a depressing and distressing idea. And Paul says we groan. There is something in us that is resistant to that. It's not just that we don't like it, but it seems so wrong for us to only have a few years in a body that's going to just wear out and die if we're blessed to live that long. And the reason Paul says we groan like that is because we we know there's something better. He says in another place, we want to get rid of this tent and have a house not made with hands, a permanent structure to live in, something that's truly worth living in. So, there is the groaning, the distress of the moment because there's hope that something greater is coming, that we'll be glorified, we'll be changed. Why be a Christian? Because Christians don't live in denial of death the way the rest of our world does. Have you brought up death before non-Christians lately? Death is a remarkably unpopular topic, well, anywhere, but... But those who don't have hope live in denial of death. Because death means the end for them. That is not the way Christians live. And that is the appeal of the Christian religion. To know that there is hope for life, even better life, beyond this life. Why be a Christian? Because there is hope that there is more to life than this life. I have hope despite death. And that is not just words. Because I have seen my brothers and sisters as they approach death with confidence. I have seen them at the graves of their loved ones with confidence. I have seen them say, I will see them again. There is power in hope. Power to navigate the sorrows of this life instead of denying them as if they're not real and as if somehow by denying them they won't come to me. I am a Christian because Christianity is honest 
about what's going to happen to us and yet holds out promise of something better. Why be a Christian? Because being a Christian redeems the past. It makes the present wonderful, but it holds out hope for an even better future. I am a Christian because there is power here to remove sin and to remove guilt. I am a Christian because it has enabled me to face myself. I am a Christian because in Scripture I have found a purpose bigger than me. I am a Christian because Christianity has taught me, Jesus has taught me how to finally get over myself. I have found peace and joy in Christ. I can face my own insignificance and my own mortality through the gospel. What I'm trying to say is that Christianity addresses deeper issues than what we want to face. And so if we are going to appeal to others, we need to take them to what really matters in life. And we need to show them these are your needs, even if you don't realize it. And we need to remember, as sometimes as disciples of Christ, we falter and we doubt and we worry, that what we have is everything we need to deal with our past, to live in the present, and to look forward to what's to come. And so I want to take this moment to offer the invitation, if there is anyone here who is willing to become a Christian, that you need to know that you need to accept the sacrifice of Jesus by faith. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one that God sent into the world to be the Redeemer and the Savior, that He died for your sins? Do you believe it? And if you do believe it, are you willing to turn away from your sins to live His way, what the Bible calls repentance? And if you are, you're willing to change your life and give it over to Him. Are you willing to be baptized and have His blood wash away your sins? Have your sins forgiven? You can leave this building this morning a New Testament Christian, ready to deal with your past, live in a glorious present, and look forward to the glory God has prepared for all His children. Do you need to come? Please come right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.